Chapter One of The Great Shadow. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Great Shadow by Arthur Conan Doyle. Chapter One The Night of the Beacons. It is strange to me, Jock Calder of West Inch, to feel that though now in the very centre of the nineteenth century I am but fifty-five years of age, and though it is only once in a week perhaps that my wife can pluck out a little grey bristle from over my ear, yet I have lived in a time when the thoughts and the ways of men were as different as though it were another planet from this. For when I walk in my fields I can see down Barrackway the little fluffs of white smoke which tell me of this strange new hundred-legged beast, with coals for food and a thousand men in its belly, forever crawling over the border. On a shiny day I can see the glint of the brasswork as it takes the curve near Corrymuir, and then, as I look out to sea, there is the same beast again, or a dozen of them, maybe, leaving a trail of black in the air and of white in the water, and swimming in the face of the wind as easily as a salmon up the tweed. Such a sight as that would have struck my good old father speechless with wrath as well as surprise, for he was so stricken with the fear of offending the Creator that he was chary of contradicting nature, and always held the new thing to be nearly akin to the blasphemous. As long as God made the horse, and a man down Birmingham way the engine, my good old dad would have stuck by the saddle and the spurs." but he would have been still more surprised had he seen the peace and kindliness which reigns now in the hearts of men, and the talk in the papers and at the meetings that there is to be no more war, save, of course, with blacks and such like. For when he died we had been fighting with scarce a break, save only during two short years, for very nearly a quarter of a century. Think of it, you who live so quietly and peacefully now. Babies who were born in the war grew to be bearded men with babies of their own, and still the war continued. Those who had served and fought in their stalwart prime grew stiff and bent, and yet the ships and the armies were struggling. It was no wonder that folk came at last to look upon it as the natural state, and thought how queer it must seem to be at peace. During that long time we fought the Dutch, we fought the Danes, we fought the Spanish, we fought the Turks, we fought the Americans, we fought the Montevideans, until it seemed that in this universal struggle no race was too near of kin or too far away to be drawn into the quarrel. But most of all it was the French whom we fought, and the man whom of all others we loathed and feared and admired was the great captain who ruled them. It was very well to draw pictures of him and sing songs about him and make as though he were an impostor, but I can tell you that the fear of that man hung like a black shadow over all Europe, and that there was a time when the glint of a fire at night upon the coast would set every woman upon her knees and every man gripping for his musket. He had always won. That was the terror of it. The fates seemed to be behind him and now we knew that he lay upon the northern coast with a hundred and fifty thousand veterans and the boats for their passage. 
but it is an old story how a third of the grown folk of our country took up arms, and how our little one-eyed, one-armed man crushed their fleet. There was still to be a land of free-thinking and free-speaking in Europe. There was a great beacon ready on the hill by Tweedmouth, built up of logs and tar-barrels, and I can well remember how, night after night, I strained my eyes to see if it were ablaze. I was only eight at the time, but it is an age when one takes a grief to heart, and I felt as though the fate of the country hung in some fashion upon me and my vigilance. And then, one night as I looked, I suddenly saw a little flicker on the beacon hill, a single red tongue of flame in the darkness. I remember how I rubbed my eyes and pinched myself and wrapped my knuckles against the stone window-sill to make sure that I was indeed awake. And then the flame shot higher, and I saw the red quivering line upon the water between, and I dashed into the kitchen, screeching to my father that the French had crossed and the Tweedmouth light was aflame. He had been talking to Mr. Mitchell, the law student from Edinburgh, and I can see him now as he knocked his pipe out at the side of the fire and looked at me from over the top of his horn spectacles. "'Are you sure, Jock?' says he. "'Sure as death,' I gasped. He reached out his hand for the Bible upon the table, and opened it upon his knee as though he meant to read to us. But he shut it again in silence and hurried out. We went, too, the law student and I, and followed him down to the gate which opens out upon the highway. From there we could see the red light of the big beacon and the glimmer of a smaller one to the north of us at Ayton. My mother came down with two plaids to keep the chill from us, and we all stood there until morning, speaking little to each other, and that little in a whisper. The road had more folk on it than ever passed along it at night before, for many of the yeomen up our way had enrolled themselves in the Berwick Volunteer Regiments, and were riding now as fast as Hoof could carry them for the muster. Some had a stirrup-cup or two before parting, and I cannot forget one who tore past on a huge white horse, brandishing a great rusty sword in the moonlight. They shouted to us as they passed that the North Berwick Law fire was blazing, and that it was thought that the alarm had come from Edinburgh Castle. There were a few who galloped the other way, couriers for Edinburgh and the Laird's son and Master Clayton the deputy sheriff and such like and among others there was one, a fine-built, heavy man on a roan horse, who pulled up at our gate and asked some question about the road. He took off his hat to ease himself, and I saw that he had a kindly, long-drawn face, and a great high brow that shot away up into tufts of sandy hair. I doubt it's a false alarm, said he. Maybe I'd ha' done well to bide where I was, but now I've come so far I'll break my fast with the regiment. He clapped spurs to his horse, and away he went down the bray. I ken him wheel, said our student, nodding after him. He's a lawyer in Edinburgh and a braw hand at the stringin' of verses. Watty Scott is his name. None of us had heard of it then, but it was not long before it was the best-known name in Scotland, and many a time we thought of how he speared his way of us on the night of the terror. But early in the morning we had our minds set at ease. 
It was grey and cold, and my mother had gone up to the house to make a pot of tea for us, when there came a gig down the road with Dr. Horscroft of Ayton in it, and his son Jim. The collar of the doctor's brown coat came over his ears, and he looked in a deadly black humour, for Jim, who was but fifteen years of age, had trooped off to Berwick at the first alarm with his father's new fowling-piece. All night his dad had chased him, and now there he was, a prisoner, with the barrel of the stolen gun sticking out from behind the seat. He looked as sulky as his father, with his hands thrust into his side pockets, his brows drawn down, and his lower lip thrusting out. "'It's all a lie,' shouted the doctor as he passed. "'There has been no landing, and all the fools in Scotland have been gadding about the roads for nothing.' His son Jim snarled something up at him on this, and his father struck him a blow with his clenched fist on the side of his head, which sent the boy's chin forward upon his breast as though he had been stunned. My father shook his head, for he had a liking for Jim. But we all walked up to the house again, nodding and blinking, and hardly able to keep our eyes open now that we knew that all was safe, but with a thrill of joy at our hearts, such as I have only matched once or twice in my lifetime. Now all this has little enough to do with what I took my pen up to tell about, but when a man has a good memory and little skill, he cannot draw one thought from his mind without a dozen others trailing out behind it. And yet, now that I come to think of it, this had something to do with it after all, for Jim Horscroft had so deadly a quarrel with his father that he was packed off to the Berwick Academy, and as my father had long wished me to go there, he took advantage of this chance to send me also. But before I say a word about this school, I shall go back to where I should have begun, and give you a hint as to who I am, for it may be that these words of mine may be read by some folk beyond the border country who never heard of the Calders of West Inch. It has a brave sound, West Inch, but it is not a fine estate with a braw house upon it, but only a great hard-bitten, wind-swept sheep-run, fringing off into links along the seashore, where a frugal man might with hard work just pay his rent and have butter instead of treacle on Sundays. In the centre there is a grey-stoned, slate-roofed house with a byre behind it, and 1703 scrawled in stonework over the lintel of the door. There for more than a hundred years our folk have lived, until, for all their poverty, they came to take a good place among the people, for in the country parts the old yeoman is often better thought of than the new laird. There was one queer thing about the house of West Inch. It has been reckoned by engineers and other knowing folk that the boundary line between the two countries ran right through the middle of it, splitting our second-best bedroom into an English half and a Scotch half. Now the cot in which I always slept was so placed that my head was to the north of the line and my feet to the south of it. My friends say that if I had chanced to lie the other way, my hair might not have been so sandy, nor my mind of so solemn a cast. This I know, that more than once in my life, when my scotch head could see no way out of a danger, my good thick English legs have come to my help, and carried me clear away. But at school I never heard the end of this, for they would call me half and half, and the Great Britain, and sometimes Union Jack. 
when there was a battle between the Scotch and English boys, one side would kick my shins, and the other cuff my ears, and then they would both stop and laugh as though it were something funny. At first I was very miserable at the Barrack Academy. Bert Whistle was the first master, and Adams the second, and I had no love for either of them. I was shy and backward by nature, and slow at making a friend either among masters or boys. It was nine miles as the crow flies, and eleven and a half by road, from Berwick to West Inch, and my heart grew heavy at the weary distance that separated me from my mother, for, mark you, a lad of that age pretends that he has no need of his mother's caresses, but ah, how sad he is when he is taken at his word. At last I could stand it no longer, and I determined to run away from the school and make my way home as fast as I might. At the very last moment, however, I had the good fortune to win the praise and admiration of every one, from the headmaster downwards, and to find my school life made very pleasant and easy to me. And all this came of my falling by accident out of a second-floor window. This was how it happened. One evening I had been kicked by Ned Barton, who was the bully of the school, and this injury coming on the top of all my other grievances caused my little cup to overflow. I vowed that night, as I buried my tear-stained face beneath the blankets, that the next morning would either find me at West Inch or well on the way to it. Our dormitory was on the second floor, but I was a famous climber and had a fine head for heights. I used to think little, young as I was, of swinging myself with a rope round my thigh off the West Inch gable, and that stood three and fifty feet above the ground. There was not much fear then but that I could make my way out of Bert Whistle's dormitory. I waited a weary while until the coughing and tossing had died away and there was no sound of wakefulness from the long line of wooden cots. Then I very softly rose, slipped on my clothes, took my shoes in my hand, and walked tiptoe to the window. I opened the casement and looked out. Underneath me lay the garden, and close by my hand was the stout branch of a pear-tree. An active lad could ask no better ladder. Once in the garden I had but a five-foot wall to get over, and then there was nothing but distance between me and home. I took a firm grip of a branch with one hand, placed my knee upon another one, and was about to swing myself out of the window, when in a moment I was as silent and as still as though I had been turned to stone. There was a face looking at me from over the coping of the wall. A chill of fear struck to my heart at its whiteness and its stillness. The moon shimmered upon it, and the eyeballs moved slowly from side to side, though I was hid from them behind the screen of the pear-tree. Then, in a jerky fashion, this white face ascended, until the neck, shoulders, waist, and knees of a man became visible. He sat himself down on the top of the wall, and with a great heave he pulled up after him a boy about my own size, who caught his breath from time to time, as though to choke down a sob. The man gave him a shake with a few rough whispered words, and then the two dropped together down into the garden. I was still standing balanced with one foot upon the bow and one upon the casement, not daring to budge for fear of attracting their attention, for I could hear them moving stealthily about in the long shadow of the house. 
Suddenly, from immediately beneath my feet, I heard a low grating noise and the sharp tinkle of falling glass. "'That's done it,' said the man's eager whisper. "'There's room for you.' "'But the edge is all jagged,' cried the other in a weak quaver. The fellow burst out into an oath that made my skin pringle. "'In with you, you cub,' he snarled, or—' I could not see what he did, but there was a short, quick gasp of pain. "'I'll go, I'll go,' cried the little lad. But I heard no more, for my head suddenly swam, my heel shot off the branch, I gave a dreadful yell, and came down, with my ninety-five pounds of weight, right upon the bent back of the burglar. If you ask me, I can only say that to this day I am not quite certain whether it was an accident, or whether I designed it. It may be that while I was thinking of doing it, chance settled the matter for me. The fellow was stooping with his head forward, thrusting the boy through a tiny window, when I came down upon him, just where the neck joins the spine. He gave a kind of whistling cry, dropped upon his face, and rolled three times over, drumming on the grass with his heels. His little companion flashed off in the moonlight, and was over the wall in a trice. As for me, I sat yelling at the pitch of my lungs and nursing one of my legs, which felt as if a red-hot ring were welded round it. It was not long, as may be imagined, before the whole household, from the headmaster to the stable-boy, were out in the garden with lamps and lanterns. The matter was soon cleared, the man carried off upon a shutter, and I borne in much state and solemnity to a special bedroom, where the small bone of my leg was set by Surgeon Purdy, the younger of the two brothers of that name. As to the robber, it was found that his legs were palsied, and the doctors were of two minds as to whether he would recover the use of them or no but the law never gave them a chance of settling the matter, for he was hanged after Carlisle Assizes some six weeks later. It was proved that he was the most desperate rogue in the north of England, for he had done three murders at the least, and there were charges enough against him upon the sheet to have hanged him ten times over. Well, now, I could not pass over my boyhood without telling you about this, which was the most important thing that happened to me but I will go off upon no more side-tracks, for when I think of all that is coming, I can see very well that I shall have more than enough to do before I have finished. For when a man has only his own little private tale to tell, it often takes him all his time. But when he gets mixed up in such great matters as I shall have to speak about, then it is hard on him, if he has not been brought up to it, to get it all set down to his liking— but my memory is as good as ever, thank God, and I shall try to get it all straight before I finish. It was this business of the burglar that first made a friendship between Jim Horscroft, the doctor's son, and me. He was cock-boy of the school from the day he came, for within the hour he had thrown Barton, who had been cock before him, right through the big blackboard in the classroom. Jim always ran to muscle and bone, and even then he was square and tall, short of speech and long in the arm, much given to lounging with his broad back against walls, and his hands deep in his breeches' pockets. I can even recall that he had a trick of keeping a straw in the corner of his mouth, just where he used afterwards to hold his pipe. 
Jim was always the same, for good and for bad, since first I knew him. Heavens, how we all looked up to him! We were but young savages, and had a savage's respect for power. There was Tom Carndale of Appleby, who could write alcaics as well as mere pentameters and hexameters, yet nobody would give a snap for Tom. And there was Willie Earnshaw, who had every date from the killing of Abel on the tip of his tongue, so that the masters themselves would turn to him if they were in doubt. Yet he was but a narrow-chested lad, overlong for his breadth. And what did his dates help him when Jack Simons of the lower third chivied him down the passage with the buckle-end of a strap? But you didn't do things like that with Jim Horscroft. What tales we used to whisper about his strength! how he put his fist through the oak panel of the game-room door, how, when long Marydew was carrying the ball, he caught up Marydew, ball and all, and ran swiftly past every opponent to the goal. It did not seem fit to us that such a one as he should trouble his head about spondees and dactyls, or care to know who signed the Magna Charta, when he said in open class that King Alfred was the man, we little boys all felt that very likely it was so, and that perhaps Jim knew more about it than the man who wrote the book. Well, it was this business of the burglar that drew his attention to me, for he patted me on my head and said that I was a spunky little devil, which blew me out with pride for a week on end. For two years we were close friends, for all the gap that the years had made between us, and though in passion or in want of thought he did many a thing that galled me, yet I loved him like a brother, and wept as much as would have filled an ink-bottle when at last he went off to Edinburgh to study his father's profession. Five years after that did I tide at Bert Whistles, and when I left I had become cock myself, for I was wiry and as tough as whalebone though I never ran to wait and sinew like my great predecessor. It was in Jubilee year that I left Bert Whistles, and then for three years I stayed at home learning the ways of the cattle. But still the ships and the armies were wrestling, and still the great shadow of Bonaparte lay across the country. How could I guess that I too should have a hand in lifting that shadow forever from our people? End of chapter 1